My name is Mike Downey, and I'm a documentary filmmaker. And um, lately, I'm also the co-founder of the Gord Downey Chaney Wenjack Fund, which is a, um, a fund that we, uh, my brother and I have set up uh, to help uh, move the needle uh, in relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. Well, thank you so much for coming by. Thank you. I know you're busy. I know you just brought your your, your kids back from the cottage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really appreciate your time. I know you're a very busy guy. Um, I didn't know what to ask you first, uh, so I'm just going to go ahead and ask you. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of people, when I told them that I was going to have you in in studio, um, there's a whole bunch of questions which I'm going to go through. But one of the questions that came up was, um, are you going to ask about Gord and stuff and, and that mm-hmm. sort of? So I, I just want to ask you, how how is how is your brother Gord doing? Well, you know, some people ask me how I'm doing first before they ask how oh, Gord's yeah. doing. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I often say, why don't we just talk? Why don't we just get this? You know, <laughs> get it. Over. We get right, skip right to the uh, to the heart of it. No, yeah. um, I'm joking. Uh, Gordy is actually doing quite well. Okay, good. Um, he has been very keeping himself quite busy. Mm-hmm. He's actually been writing with some old friends like oh. writing songs music uh okay. and doing some recording with old friends and um and he's got several of these kind of projects on the go and wow. so he's and we have you know a couple of different things that we're doing um we've got a concert film coming up of secret path live which was recorded uh in roy thompson hall last october and we're yes. working on that um so we're um He's he's pretty busy guy actually. Wow, he yeah. seems like he's busier now. You know, he, has, he has always been. been has he always yeah, been? Yeah, he's always had a, he's just been well, he's always been very prolific, but he's also a very um I want to say that you know, he's very industrious. He really okay. he works hard and uh so I think that right now uh, he's doing exactly what he should, which is keeping himself busy yeah. and uh, and being creative. You know, he's awesome. a he's a creative guy, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, I think you know he should keep doing exactly what he's doing now, um, just as long as he can. Well, it's good to hear that he's doing mm-hmm. well. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and how are you doing? Mike? And me? Oh, <laughs> I've I've had such a week, and it's only Monday. Uh, no, I I'm doing really well. I mean. Um, you know, it's a busy, you know, I, I don't even, I don't know if you should, are we even supposed to say we're busy anymore? Like it just seems like know, such it, a fact of life. <laughs> yeah, know? we all are, aren't we? Yeah. So, yeah. but no, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing really well. Um, and I'm keeping busy too. And uh, that's, you know, that's the best thing. Absolutely. You know, that's the best thing. Um, if, if someone were to have predicted that you were going to get into um, filmmaking, in documentary after y- your background mm-hmm. um that person should be a millionaire because mm-hmm. uh, you've done everything from working in the mines mm-hmm. to correct. being an economist correct to um to working in medicine a little bit yeah yeah um, a little bit what, what was what was your first non uh 
non-entertainment um, gig that you had? Because you went, you went to, so you did your MBA. I did. Um, well, I first did. you did you did a Bachelor of Science at Queens, right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. That, correct. Yeah. Correct. That, your, your hometown in Kingston. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was a townie. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was like a decade before you went, you came here to Toronto to do your MBA. Uh, I don't feel like, no, I don't think it was that long. Okay. My, um, my girlfriend and I, who's now my wife, mm-hmm. uh, we moved to Montreal. Okay. I, you know what I did after I graduated, uh, I did my undergrad yeah. and it was such a big deal for me to do my undergrad. I mean, I started when I was, I started full time when I was 22 Oh. And I had already worked in the mine. Like, I went and worked in the mines when I was 18. Wow. I was one of these, I just wanted to get out. Is it, uh, was your dad a miner? Is no, that, no, my dad was a lingerie salesman. Uh, <laughs> Wait, okay, let's well, stop. Well, it's not about was, you anymore, Mike. He, exactly, exactly. Uh, he, w- by that time, <laughs> he was probably into real estate. But okay. in my formative years, he was a lingerie salesman. So, dad was, um, <laughs> dad was just an amazing guy, but... He was very much a you know soft skill kind of guy. He okay. he was uh, just a charming Irishman, although born in Toronto. But his parents mm-hmm. came over on the boat, and um, so. But for whatever reason, when I was eighteen, I really wanted to. I wanted to be a man. I think so. Hmm. I think I was. I went out west to try to get a job as a longshoreman in Vancouver, and okay. that's almost impossible to do. Um, at least it was in nineteen seventy eight. And, uh, and then I went to um, try to get a job in the oil fields as a roughneck. So clearly I was just trying like totally to... totally opposite from your dad. Completely. Completely. Wow. And I think maybe I used to see dad working in the evening, you know, like, because you have to get, you, you know, there's a lot of paperwork and things like that as, mm-hmm. a, as a traveling salesman, which he was. And I think I just had this romantic idea of being, you know, a guy who, um, you know, whatever was... I don't know. I, I had some romantic idea of being in those real primary industries, you know. Really? So the only thing I didn't try was uh, forestry, and I ended up doing that. But that was more tree planting in, in university. Okay. But so when I went to university, I was already uh, twenty two, wow. um, and uh, so. Um, but the good news is, you know, I did I did the the mining, and that really broke me. That I really I realized okay. how hard that work was, mm. and there were guys that I thought were in their, you know, I was 18. Yeah. And I would have thought these guys were, must be in their 40s. And mm. they, in fact, were 10 years older than me. They were not even wow. 30. And they looked, they, they looked, aged, they eh? aged. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're in there, like they were working production. So they were on a drill. And, you know, you're drilling into a rock face eight mm-hmm. hours a day with a massive jackhammer, whatever it was, uh, you know. So <clears throat> that really kind of cured me. Yeah. And what happened when I was in this little mining town in northern Ontario called Manitowage was there was we were there. We came up in the winter. A bunch of us. Uh, we were um, we'd been recruited from across the country, different, different from different small towns and stuff. And they were going to teach us mining. Mm-hmm. And there was an empty bunkhouse beside us. And it must have been like early May mm-hmm. all, in one day. Uh, this bunkhouse filled up with all these mining engineers mostly from queens okay and it and i was next door in this bunkhouse and you know we were just a good bunch of guys kind of a ragtag bunch and all of a sudden these guys showed up and they it was like a scene out of a movie i you you watch the movie and the next thing you know they've got the 
cooler set up on the front lawn. The speakers are in the window. Like they're just treating it like they're on campus. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what you do. Yeah. And I, I assume we had done some version of that, but these guys were organized. They were engineers. You know what I mean? Okay. So things were done in a, yeah. in a kind of a cool way. <laughs> Everything was sort of, you know, they had. So that I started to hang out with these guys. Okay. And there was one guy in particular. His name was Tex. His nickname was Tex. And we kind of spent the summer just talking. And and I remember uh, him saying to me, you know, did you ever think about going to university? And um, and I said, no, I, I never did really. Like the high school I was at was kind of a rural school. And yeah. just the really, really smart kids went off to university. Were you the first one in your family to go to university? I was. Okay. My older sister, Charlene, went to community college. Okay. But... Um, but I was the first one, uh, yeah, in our in our family to go, and mm-hmm. it was—I mean, it was a big step. Yeah. But meeting these guys and really partying with these guys okay. is what kind of—I I thought I think I'm missing something. <laughs> I think there's something because see the kids that I knew from my little high school that went off—they yeah. wouldn't have been that that kind of in that kind of party scene. Mm. Maybe eventually they would have been, but they would have been pretty. Okay. Pretty serious students, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and my guy, my friends were all a bunch of, yeah, yeah. they were all crazy. So, uh, you either had to be really, really smart or you didn't go. Yeah. And you saw these guys are actually having fun. I'm missing yeah. some. Like, there and, is a middle ground. Yeah. And I kind and, and, you know, the way that they accepted me. Yeah. And made me feel like maybe I could do this too. You know, okay. maybe, maybe I'd be smart enough to go to university. Yeah. So, how'd you choose uh, to study science? Um, that probably so what i did was after i did the mining mm-hmm. uh i still had a couple of things to get out of my system okay uh, so i bought my mom's car for a couple of weeks <laughs> drove it to florida with a good oh. friend of mine steve cherry <laughs> stayed for three months yeah and uh and then there was a bunch is this of your eldest daughter that's sitting here listening to this is lily yeah yeah my 13 year old one of my twin daughters yes so now you're listening to dad say all of these things that he did to not go to university. Are you going to hold this against him when he says it's time to go to a university? Why wouldn't I want to leave? Why wouldn't I? <laughs> She's ready to go. There you go. That's what I wanted to do, too. I want to get out of the house. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so anyway, so we... Um, you go to Florida. So yeah, we go. To, I go to Florida and, uh, and, you know, I just... And then come back and, and, and do some more um, filling in a little bit of time. Uh, but when I, I went back to high school first, so I went to okay. high school. I went to great. I went to go do my grade thirteen. Okay, when I was twenty years off. old. To fi- wow. And then, and then I screwed that up again. But um, but I did meet this wonderful. Um, I had a girlfriend in grade thirteen, and both her parents were doctors. And I just, you know, I saw their home and these really. They were both. Their parents were both Scottish. Super lovely people so smart so wise mm-hmm. and i just thought this is what i want and so i started thinking about i want to i want to be a doctor yeah i, I want to be a doctor so then um i started to uh, but whereas when i started grade 13 i didn't have i hadn't met her okay so i just did a combination of courses none of them really worked out too much but about and then i kind of flunked out of grade 13 but then the next year okay i started to think about science and then I managed to get into to Queens as a mature student. Okay. Because by then I'd already turned 21. Wow. And even though I hadn't managed to get my grade 13, it actually yeah. worked to, to my advantage because to get in as a mature student, mm-hmm. you needed to be 21 or over and not have been in school full time for three years. Although I had been there, I dropped a course. Oh, so you weren't considered. I was only taking five out of six. Okay. 
<laughs> and they let me in. They allowed me to take one course for an entire academic year. Wow. Yeah. And uh, and I killed it. And uh, and then the next year, I was a full-time student. Nice. So, yeah. So you graduate. Yeah. Um, did you have plans to go to medical school then? or I or? really wanted to go to medical school. You did? School. Okay. Yeah, I did. Um, now, by the time I graduated, I think I had... Um, my marks were borderline, and I got on the waiting list a couple of times, mm -hmm. and then the advice I got was to start a master's, probably like in physiology, like something that's very okay. right up the middle for medicine. Yeah. And and I thought, I, I think I need a break from school, because I'd work, I'd work pretty hard. Okay. Now, I'd also, um, it, with each year, I sort of became a little bit more acclimatized, and I sort of had a little bit more fun each year. I kind of did the opposite of what a lot of people do, and they okay. really party hard in the first year. Yeah. A little bit less in the second, they get serious in the third and fourth. And I was really serious. In the, I kind of went the opposite <laughs> way. And then, uh, but having said that, um, I needed a break. So I, after I graduated... I moved down to uh, the Virgin Islands and lived down there for oh, wow. for a year. Yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just for the heck of it. Yeah, just to get away <laughs> from it all. And uh, and yeah, Chase, you know that was that was kind of a I don't know if it was a dream, but yeah. it was something that um, that really attracted me. So okay, so I went down to the Virgin Islands, and then after all of that, then you went back to school. Or no, is there more? No, no, no. Then I then I, then then after that was after university. Okay. Then then I. Moved to Montreal, got the job at McGill, mm -hmm. doing the medical research. Oh, and then okay, from there okay. an MBA. This is a lot of. Oh wow! Good lord! Yeah. You have to edit this. <laughs> so after your MBA, this, is, this should be called like definition of uh, ADHD. <laughs> ADHD. Yeah, this is the poster child. I think we all have that. Yeah. Um, what was what was it about economics that you said, "Nah, this is not for me"? Um, it was probably the office. Okay. It was probably the office. Um, Suit and tie. Yeah, yeah, I was right. I was with a really good uh, little uh, boutique firm, uh, New Lebec and Associates, and right downtown, uh, Young and King, and uh, and what I did was I had that job, and they were so good to me because I'd started my MBA full time, and then I got. A uh, job working for them over the summer, and then in the fall they said, "You know, what do you think about working? Maybe I forget what I did the first term, but maybe work do two courses at mm -hmm. night and yeah. work four days, if, if you know, or five days, whatever it was." And and so what I did was for each term I would come up with some combination of work four days, do three night courses, which was a killer. I can imagine, yeah. Or work three days and work four nights, uh, or sorry, do four courses because, so I did this kind of hybrid of trying to get through my MBA, but I, I really like the income of working in, sure. a, in a kind of a, you know, decent, you know, downtown job. Mm -hmm. And so I motored through that and um, I think I got it all done in about just under three years. Uh, but, I, you know, that, that was... So by the time I had finished my last course for MBA, mm -hmm. I was kind of burnt out on, on. Wow! I mean, I was just probably burnt out on, yeah. on doing, you know, working and, and school. But the two kind of complemented each other quite a bit because I was doing economic research. Okay. I majored in as much as I could. It wasn't really a major because it's an MBA, but I I took as many economics courses as I could. Mm -hmm. Really enjoyed them, mm -hmm. and really enjoyed my job. But then when it was by the time it was done, I was ready to make this big shift, which was into television. 
Now, how did that happen? Because you don't just make the leap. Like, there's something, someone gave you a camera. I remember the day it happened. Okay, I remember the go. day it happened. So, I'd been doing some, and the the firm, Nula Beck & Associates, used to get quite a bit of ink in the Globe and Mail. So, we were in the ROB quite regularly. And okay. I and the, it, we're a small, a small uh, firm, so I found myself in the pages of, um, which was fantastic. Like, yeah. I was just, you know. Um, and um, so, this one day... Uh, CBC local, uh, I want to say it was Brenda Craig, came by to interview me about a little piece I'd done on the unemployment numbers. Okay. Just very basic. Yeah. Um, and um, so she came in, and you know this would have been um, uh, 1992, I think. And you know they were in wa- in the door, and I'm sitting in this office, you know, and it's it's very small office, yeah. not that many people. Yeah. And here they come in. They got the cameraman. They got the sound guy. They got the director. They've yeah. got the on-air person, and they start setting up There's the lights. Oh, I mean, it's just like the circus came yeah. to town, right? And I'm looking at this, and the, and then they set up, and I'm a little nervous, but I'm just more intrigued with like, okay. you know, they're doing all this, and she tells me, well, you know, we've we've been out, we've already talked to so and so, and now we'd like to talk to you, and you're going to tell us whatever you you know whatever you're going to tell us, and I just remember just thinking. What a cool job. And then okay. what, when they were leaving, yeah. I remember, uh, I think I asked, I don't think I asked what, what they were going next because I knew they were going to go back and cut the piece together for that night. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying, what, what story are you doing tomorrow? And she's like, we won't know till tomorrow. You know, and I thought, wow. You know, like they get in in the morning. Yeah. You know, I'd probably do a little bit of looking ahead, but get in the morning and and I thought, wow, what a life, you know, like really? you wait, wake up in the morning and you don't even know what you're going to be doing, where you're going to be going, but yeah. you know, you're going to be working on something. So I actually Gord, um, his manager, uh, Alan Gregg, he, um, had, was friends with Peter Mansbridge and he, and, and just, just a wonderful supportive guy and, mm-hmm. a, and a great friend of Gord's and a, and a really good friend of mine. Um, and I remember saying to Alan, um, you know, do you have any contacts at CBC? I'm, I think I might like to wow. get a job on the national news as a researcher or something. Okay, right? okay. And he's like, are you sure, Mike? You, know, you, you make more money as doing what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, I know. But he's like, no, really. I mean, you know, you end up working at a bank or something. Like, you know, yeah. you're, you're going to be, you're going to do pretty good. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I think I'd like to do this. And all right. Don't say I didn't warn you. Yeah. So uh, he, he introduced me to a wonderful guy, uh, Ellie Alborn. The next thing you know, I was interviewing um, for a job with CBC. And the next thing you know, they hired me um, to start January 2nd, whatever, 1993, I think. So, oh, wow. And, that, and I, um, it was almost like a, a hangover. I kept showing up in a suit and tie, <laughs> and everybody thought that I, I wanted to be uh, on air. On uh, air? I was, was going to be on air reporter. Yeah. Did you know like, what you wanted to do? Like No, I didn't. I mean, they, they hired me as a researcher. I okay. Was, I, I'd sort of jumped over one. I think the entry level entry job would have been a production assistant, a PA, okay. like yeah. a runner. Not, Running not around. Very, not very glamorous, but yeah. that's, that's what people did. After journalism school, they did a nice thing for me. They said, you know, we um, typically hire people out of journalism school. Yeah. And then... Um, you know, we, you know, we make, uh, well, we, we make mistakes or, well, I shouldn't say mistakes, but yeah, they make mistakes when they do a health story or a business story. Yeah. So what we'd like to do is you've got a good background in business and economics. We'll teach you the journalism and you make sure we get, 
you know, we get the story right. We get the right. whatever the numbers right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought this is fantastic, and that's exactly what happened. You wow. know, I I never really consider myself a, um, you know, a real journalist, but sure, you know, they taught me how to, you know, how to research a story, how to put a story on air, and and so I kind of worked my way. Uh, well, I, I worked at the National News, and then I jumped over to Venture, the business show with Robert Scully. If you remember, it was a Sunday night show, fantastic mm -hmm. business show. Yeah. Um, and I worked there for a couple of years. Okay. Um, and then just kind of, you know, the great thing about CBC in those days was that they, see, when I went for this job at CBC, it was mm -hmm. the, I remember my resume, because as I, as you sort of picked up on, like I had this, I had this very, um, you know, I'd never, I'd never really kept a job for more than a couple of years sure. maximum. So I just jumped here, there and everywhere. But when I went in to talk to him, that was the first time I just put everything down. Because you know what you would do is yeah. you leave a few things out, you extend exactly extend those other ones a few <laughs> more months and sort of absorb the downtime. But yeah. But I just put everything down there. Yeah. And I remember him looking at it and I thought, Ooh I over done. lunch. Yeah. And I thought, Ooh, that might have been a mistake. Yeah. And he, I remember and he I remember he uh, came to the interview. He wore a beret and uh, and I'm just trying to think of his name and I will think of it. Um and I remember he looked up and he said what a curious fellow you are. And I thought, thank you. Okay, that's a thank good thing. You. Yeah, it's a good thing. Because, you know, when you're trying to, you know, typically you're, you know, you're trying to, um, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to, you know, you get the sandpaper out. You're trying to, you know, sort of sand down the rough edges that you think might stop you from, you know, getting in the door, mm -hmm. you know, a situation like that. And I thought, well, there you go. You know, I was, I was totally honest with, yeah. you know, this and, and, and uh, but it was the right move because I would change TV programs that you know I went from the national news I jumped first opportunity to venture because I I knew that the they did more documentary pieces mm -hmm. it was going to be a different kind of experience and then I went from that to an art show oh wow and of course but in that milieu that's really encouraged or at least it was not discouraged okay that you know you switch you switch different. switch shows yeah, yeah shows yeah. get canceled I mean you know and you're still doing research. Uh, yeah, when I got to, I was able to switch to the art show to be a producer, though. Okay. I was able to go out and do my, do the pieces. Yeah. You know, go, like the guys who came in the door when I was a, you Yeah, know, and set economist. everything up. Yeah, and, and sort of figure out how to craft a story. And, wow. Um, so that was, um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Do you remember your first story, like that was yours? I do. Yeah. Um, they, they, because... On the venture, there would have been a couple of minor ones. We, okay. were, we were able to get like these little graphics pieces, but they were just interstitial. Yeah. So there was really nothing, just some stats and figure out a nice way to work mm -hmm. with a graphic artist and figure out a way. But I remember it was on the arts and it was the first piece that I did for them. And, um, and I really wanted to, and they, you know, they were giving me a bump, you know, from researcher to, sure. I guess they probably hired me as associate producer. And the first one was the Barnes exhibit had come to the AGO. Now, okay. the Barnes exhibit was the largest collection of um, a Impressionist paintings outside of France. And it was a guy in Philadelphia, who uh, Dr. Barnes, who had collected all these Manets, Monets, oh. Degas. He had he really had an extraordinary collection. And mm -hmm. um, it was touring for the first time, and it was coming to Toronto to the uh, to the art gallery and um, I remember um, 
thinking and and I was assigned it and I thought okay this is kind of high culture and so um, my girlfriend uh, now my wife uh, was working at an art gallery at the time and one of her clients who she was selling um, some pretty cool art to um, was the concert master for the Toronto Symphony for the okay. TSO yeah yeah from France oh and there was this one painting called Le, Cons- uh, Le Conservatory. I won't try to say it in French. <laughs> and, um, and, but I had this idea that Jacques, Jacques Israelievich, would be a good person to tour the exhibit with, like kind of after hours. Mm-hmm. And he's a Frenchman, you know, fantastic. Like, like he's like a Napoleon kind yeah, of guy. Yeah, so yeah. charismatic and, you know, and confident and everything else. So what we did was... Um, I hired a guy, spent a bunch of money, got a cameraman to come out with a steady cam, and he did this beautiful, you know, and that was a big deal back then. You know, it was like the full RoboCop armor, you know, with the uh, camera on the front. Yeah, and they're just walking around with Walking it. around, yeah. beautiful, and following Jacques around. As Jacques is like, ah, I saw this painting in, you know, like wherever. And, and of course, what the, 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 the paintings themselves were, one was the conservatory. That's where he went to school when oh. he was, you know, in his teens. Oh, wow. So he had all this... And then he pulled out his violin, and then in the middle of the AGO, then he played. Oh wow! Surrounded by all this art, that was my first piece. Oh wow! And it, it was a it was a killer. That killer sounds piece. amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a good, and, and it used to the show was on the weekend, so uh, nobody had seen it. Uh, like my the woman who hired me, yeah, like who ran the whole unit and stuff like that, and she came in on the Monday morning and sort of looked over at me and said, "Nice, good work, and awesome." I was like, okay. Fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, you did some work on Dragons Den mm-hmm. as well. How mm-hmm. was that experience? That's like a that was awesome. Canadian institution. It now. totally is. And yeah. I, I, my, um, so the Dragons Den came about. I went. I got invited out for dinner with my buddy Stuart Cox. Yeah. And uh, he was having uh, dinner with another uh, mutual friend, Doug Aerosmith, and Stuart. And so I would already. Was Stuart the creator of that show? Or well, he was. He was the exec producer. And what okay. happened was, is that CBC had the rights to the mm. show. Now the show mm-hmm. had started in Japan, and then it went to the UK, and then the Aussies had done their version too. And CBC got the Canadian rights yeah. to the show. So, uh, and I had left. Stuart and I were at Venture together, and and we had crossed paths several times. And we were both inside CBC, and then I had left CBC. And he was still there, uh, but, you know, like, you know, as an exec, doing very well. Yeah. And he said, oh, you know, I got this. There's this new department called, you know, Factual Entertainment. And they've they got this show and it's going to be called Dragon's Den. And it's a bit, but it's, you know, it's reality TV. Now, I'd already been doing some of that kind of work. Okay. But it was, wasn't early days, but it had been around for a few years. And and I, I just said, do it. Like, don't. Like, don't second guess it. Yeah. Like, it could be a great show. I yeah. mean, like, and so I said, I don't know. It sounds kind of, you know, and he was a serious guy. He sure. was more, way more of a journalist than I was. Okay, okay. I think he was, he ran He ran the Sunday morning show that they had mm. with Evan Solomon. And I mean, he was a really, so I just said, man, just do it. You yeah. know, like, if this is what they want, do it. But do a great job. Yeah. So he hired me as a series producer. Okay. So he was the exact. Yeah. Tracy Ty was the senior producer, and I was the series producer. Yeah. And we had no idea what we were doing. Really? <laughs> uh, it was, and you know, they give you the Bible and everything, but you know, 
it, it's a funny thing. You know, you have this show. We kind of knew what to do with the set and everything. We did a really cool job in one of the big um, old, um, I forget what they call the room at the distillery. You know, they had that one room that okay, they, kinda, yeah. they leave it for functions, that but it has sense. a lot of the old gack in it, you know, yeah. and gauges and things like that. And so we did it very industrial looking. And we came in there and brought in the big chairs and, uh, the you know, nine, ten cameras. And, um, and then, like, day one, it's like, okay. Did you guys get to choose who the... Stuart, I didn't really get involved okay. with the picking of the dragon. Stuart yeah. kind of went on a cross-country tour meeting these people. I was... My concern in the early days, are you really going to find Canadian guys and girls who are going to put their money into this? Because it's their money. Okay. That, that's the th I thought, geez, I don't know. And that was not an issue. It, really? It really wasn't. No. Okay. No, he got the... I mean, took a... The bigger issue was just getting people that would be good, good TV. Okay. Um, and yeah. and I'll never forget. We had a rehearsal day, and I think they had a few of the pitches that they thought were probably not, you know, grade A. Although we didn't really know at the time what a grade A pitch was going to sure. be. Sure. But they had a we, we had to have a rehearsal day, so we had this rehearsal day, and we're sitting there, and we've been futzing around with everything, the <laughs> lighting and this and that. But you know, now it's time to let these people, because it's going to be their show, right? These yeah. people are going to come up. It's not scripted. And I'll never forget the first pitch who came up. And um, I, f I can't remember what he said first, but when Kevin O'Leary said the first thing, I just thought, we're fine. Really? We're absolutely So he said fine. something outrageous. He just the... said something outrageous. You're going to zero. This is awful. <laughs> like, did your, you know, yeah. your wife hasn't left you yet. Like, go home and beg for her forgiveness and tell her, you're, you know, you're not going to spend another dime on so this. So he got the game. He understood. He got it right away. Yeah. And um, and then, but we, so we did a couple things that in that first, because what you, you block shoot it for 10 days. Okay. So you just do person after person after person after person. And then you figure out which ones you're going to use later. Cut them together. So um, the one thing we did figure out was that, you know, somebody would come out and you like right away, there's, I could kind of tell, uh, and we were talking, Stuart and Tracy and I were talking you know, you could kind of tell that something was going to be really good. You know, like it was, well, maybe a deal, which, which there weren't that many. I think there were only six deals over, okay. the, over the ten, eight or nine days. Um, maybe seven deals. But you could see a train wreck, and you're thinking, oh, this is going to make the cut because this guy is okay. losing it. You know, yeah. or, you know, like he is, you know, like, or all sorts, tears, you name it. Like, yeah, yeah. Things happen. So, but then it seemed like there was a lot of, like, um, uh, stuff in the middle that was just sort of like well you know it's kind of an interesting story mm -hmm. but and what we realized was that uh, and we kind of had to take a little break and say look i think what you should do when somebody comes in and say they got something you think is a really terrible idea i think you gotta play a little bit i think you gotta explore the idea more because if right away i look at you and i go there's no way he's interested mm -hmm. And then when you speak up, you say you say something that's kind of interesting that kind of swings it around. Yeah. You know, maybe you know something about this business, or you know, mm -hmm. and if you can turn it, then we we may we may have something. Clearly, there's not going to be a deal that's going to happen. Sure. But if it's if it's such a straight shot, it's going to be a waste of time. Yeah. You know, like I can tell by the look on your face, you're not interested. Yeah. And then you open your mouth and you say, "I think this is not interesting. I don't. Yeah. I'm not interested." So, so we we had to make you know a few, you know. Um, 
uh, adjustments like that. Okay. Um, and um, but we were learning on the job. It was absolutely learning on the job. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, the first show went to air. Yeah. And we were eviscerated in the Globe and Mail that day by John Doyle, which was the only review that really mattered. Okay. You know, like the Globe and the Mail. The Globe and Mail. Yeah, sure. You know, back, this is quite a few years <laughs> sure, ago. Sure, 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 sure. And so. Paper record in Canada. Well, yeah. You yeah. know, and, and it would be good if, if the other papers liked it, but that's the one that, that took this stuff seriously. And John Doyle took it very seriously. And he eviscerated us. I mean, it was not pretty. He. Like from an entertainment perspective, from he a business hated it. perspective? He or? hated the idea of the show. Okay. He hated the people that were on the show. Sure. He hated the people that had made the show possible. <laughs> like, he hated all of us. And he often he would just pull things apart. But this one was just a total hatchet job, right? He actually didn't like it. Wow. It offended him on some level. <laughs> so, anyway, I remember Stuart comes in. And we've got a small group of people. We're only about, the whole show is being put together by about, Two are interns, but there's about five of us. Wow. Five full-time people, two of them not being paid. Crazy. Basic. Um, so, anyway, and everyone, you know, like, oh, the, you know, the review's going to be in because the show's that night. Yeah. And uh, everybody reads it, and everyone's just, oh, my gosh, you know. And I remember Stuart comes in, and Stuart just has got to, you know, he, he had to do a few during the shooting. He had to do a few of these kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, speeches you know inspirational okay. speeches yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah. and keep keep the fires burning yeah, they, yeah. they were long days and i remember he came in and he said okay i'll tell you what you know what you do when you get a bad review you show them how irrelevant that bad review is by getting great ratings and when we get those great ratings tonight yeah it won't matter you know those papers will be you know the the lining the bottom of bird cages tomorrow and john doyle none of it will matter and the next day they you know it takes a day a few hours uh, for the ratings to come out and the ratings came out and we had done we had done a pool amongst everyone who worked okay, on it. Okay. We tried to guess yeah, yeah. what the ratings were going to be. And yeah. I got to tell you, I guessed 750,000. I wasn't, that wasn't the top, you know, guess. Cause at that time, you know, popular CBC shows still hit a million. You okay. know? And um, so everybody guessed and uh, everybody guessed, I think the lowest was 425,000. Our ratings were 186,000, oh which bad. is almost zero. Oh, like at that time, that's relative. Wow, it was okay. It was so really, not an really illustrious bad. beginning to the show. It was awful, <laughs> and and then uh, and so that was the the double kick. Stuart didn't come in for it. He didn't have a speech for that one. That was just like okay, go back to work. Wow, we got a, we got a show to do for next week, and the next week, you may not believe me. The next week, John Doyle does another mini review. Because they sent him another show. Oh they sent goodness. him the second week show. Okay. Which they would never review. But he reviewed it because he just wanted to sort of confirm how much he hated the show. Now he was yeah. you know, now he was even more certain how much he yeah. hated the show. So we got to sit and we're like, another okay, bad review. who's the idiot? Well, who sent it back to who sent, who sent him the show too? <laughs> like, so then that, that night, I, I think we went to, from 186, uh, I think we went to like, I want to say 218. Okay. 218. And then the third week, we hit, I don't think we broke 300,000, but we got we got, got really close. close. And then the fourth week, we went to four and a quarter. Okay. And it was like, hold on a second. Something's happening You doubled, here. yeah. Because we did not, there was, I, I, I can't imagine there was really any kind of spend. Mm-hmm. You know, like with, with a new show, they, they always do something. But, you know, 
we had no, um, and we were a new unit. It was factual entertainment. Yeah. I mean, half the CBC thought this was an awful idea. And the ones who didn't like the idea, John Doyle and the ratings confirmed what their concern was. Sure. So th we were like, th we were a, we were about as low as you could get on the, uh, on the totem pole at, uh, hmm. at the CBC. And by week five, they, cause we had, we'd been able to put together six shows by week five. Five, they said, "Can you can you do two more? Because you have all these pitches okay. that just weren't going to get used. Yeah, we had had over 110 pitches, and you're only using about eight. Oh wow, ten a show. Even, okay, you know, some of them are just you know montage almost. Yeah, yeah. So, so then they said, "Can you can you can you carve out a couple more? So so we did, and by the time that season ended, um, uh, we were it was it was a hit. It was over five hundred thousand. That's amazing. Yeah." And I got to tell you, man, it was like those those first few weeks. It was as dark as it can get because <laughs> there was so much work that yeah. still had to be done. Wow! Uh, and and we had just a dog. It Do you know if John Doyle ever ended up liking the show? I don't think he did. No, <laughs> I, I don't think he did. I, I think you know because that show. I, I mean, still to this day, but um, that show just settled in at around the two million mark. Like it, it, it is a, it, it's a hit beyond yeah. description for them. I don't think they've not had a, just trying to imagine a show that could compare like ratings wise. Um, I don't think you know, so. I mean, I don't Hockey think, Night in Canada, but that's it, right? Yeah. I mean, that's not. That's not really a fair comparison. No, it's not. But is it? uh, I can't. I can't think of anything like besides a special event. Sure. Sure. Um, that would that could just pull in those numbers and the the numbers they get in repeat were unbelievable. Some of those shows are they can show those shows that are two years old. They can still like still pop numbers. up to you know phenomenal numbers so what is it about that show that does really well in canada why why does it work yeah i think there's a couple things one is you know there's a part of it and this is i think the very best of reality tv there's a part of it that when you're watching it you're thinking i could do that you know you're hmm. you know there's and and so there's there's one of it there's so you're you're playing kind of the the armchair quarterback and um, so there's an interest in that. And then the second part of it, I think people like to kind of consider themselves that they've got to, even if they've never, you know, if they're the world's biggest bureaucrat, they got a part of them that thinks, you know what, I could be an, I could be an entrepreneur. Yeah. You know, I, and, and I think when they're watching the show, they're trying to figure out what, what the dragons are going to do, what they would do. Mm -hmm. as a, So they're kind of armchair dragons in a way. I think that's a big part of the appeal. And then again, and then the other part of it is, you know what? Those pitches are a long one is four and a half minutes. Oh, wow. Or five minutes. They're, they're yeah. not very long. I mean, a really good one would be that yeah. long. And a lot of them are, are much shorter. So it, it, it kind of is perfect TV. Like, you know, you can get up. You can miss one. It doesn't change anything. And, um, and it all happens very quickly. And the other part of it is, Kareem, is that the, the, when we didn't realize this till we had those people come in. Mm -hmm. is the people that are doing this have taken out a second mortgage on their home they have seen their marriage go down in flames because yeah, yeah. of this yeah it goes beyond a passion it, it turns into sometimes it turns into something that is so elemental to these people for it to work and sometimes they are really they are just um so far off you know like they've got something that is never going to work mm -hmm. and they've they, they're going down the tubes with it yeah and other times it's it's a chance to like it's su they were such personal stories yeah 
Um, so there's you've got that little bit of a business element, as I said, and people mm. kind of like to think that they kind of know a thing or two about it. And then the stories themselves, which we understood that we really had to pull that out. Um, the the stories were often so personal, and and it really mattered to people on so many different levels. And that part, you know, that's a pretty that's a pretty good combination, mm. you know, to have working on um, in a program like that. You didn't come back again after season. No, I just. Yeah, it was, was it. it was all about it was all about <laughs> figuring it out. Yeah. When, once we figured it out, um, okay. And and I remember the next season, um, you know, and again back to the office. You know, so much of the show is is sitting in an edit suite, putting, okay. putting the pieces together. You, you you shoot for a week and a half. Yeah. And by that time, I'd already been doing feature, you know, documentaries and stuff where you're you got travel and you got you're out, you know, on the road with a yeah. crew and. That part, um, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to get back to um, where every day was different. Every day was different. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I kind of felt like with the Dragons Den, I kind of felt like we'd cracked, we'd cracked the code in that first season. Nice. And they got better. Like, yeah. You know, the next season, I think they moved it into the studio at CBC. Okay. Um, they got a little bit. They got, but you know, again, it's you're kind of just getting into the fine carpentry. You know, sure. Like we'd, we'd built, we'd built the house. Nice. You know, so. You've won a bunch of awards um, for for a number of films, Invasion of the Brain Snatchers, yeah. and uh, and One Ocean mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. uh, and probably others that I that I that my crack research team <laughs> didn't uh, didn't find. Um, Invasion of the Brain Snatcher. What, what was that about? That is a very interesting uh, documentary uh, about how these parasites get into creatures. And they go to the brain and they change their behavior. And they change their behavior in a way that's often very bad for the host. Okay. And, and to it, uh, to the little uh, parasite's advantage. So there's a great one. Uh, I forget what we started with. But um, one of the ones that people really remember, the zombie ants. The zombie ants get infiltrated. There are these spores that get shot out in the in the rainforest uh, mm-hmm. and we went to brazil uh, to the rainforest and we tried to film these little ants and they're god i mean if if I, what i didn't realize i knew they were small and gonna be hard to film yeah. i didn't realize they're nocturnal which actually just about you know like kind of almost impossible yeah um and um but the they um these spores are shot out they penetrate the tough exoskeleton of the ant yeah they get inside the ant and they go straight to the brain and they don't kill the ant. What they start to do is they, they uh, it starts to grow inside the brain, makes this ant. Now, ants are so, um, you know, the whole idea of a colony yeah. is there's different, they, they have perfect sort of job descriptions. Mm-hmm. And you get hired, and unlike my career and probably your career, you don't get to jump around a lot, right? Yeah. So you get stuck with the, so what the, these ants that go out on the forest floor, they actually go out and they bring, they grab the, the, the pieces of the leaf or whatever, and they bring them back. They take it only so far into the colony because they know that these guys are probably going to be diseased. So those worker ants never get to go inside more than just the most outer part of the ant colony. Okay. And it becomes more and more um, divided up. So then you have like nurse ants inside, right? Yeah, yeah. And they ferry the stuff, the food around, and they store the food. And then you have another ants, and, they're in, and then you have the queen in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. So, but what happens is these spores, a spore, so that there's nothing there. It's it's a, it's a single cellular, but you know they kind of mess to they combine together to do mm-hmm. it's like a mushroom. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what happens is, all of a sudden the, the ant starts w- starts weaving around like it's drunk, 
and instead of just going along this little path yeah. back and forth into the forest, it starts kind of weaving around like it's drunk. Okay. And the next thing it does is it goes just off the path, like just a little bit, and it goes up the stem of a, of a plant onto the underside of the leaf with its dying sort of, you know, last act. It bites into the bottom of the leaf and then... With, with, and they and they, they have obviously very very powerful jaws, and clamps down onto that leaf and then dies. And then within hours, this shoot of spores grows out of its head. I've seen that. And then there's a little I forget what they call it on the end of this like antenna. Yeah. It's all spores. Yeah. And then those out of that little ball, they it starts firing out spores onto the path below to. All his buddies. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And that, which is how it got affected by the spore in the first place. So these zombie ants are basically, so that is invade, that was the whole premise of the show. Yeah. And of course, the way, the way that we did it, uh, David Wells and I, the way that we did it was that we start off and we had even a, I think we had a caterpillar. That was a really gross one. They go inside the caterpillar, the bees yeah. sting it and they shoot their larva inside the caterpillar. Yeah. And the caterpillar Oh my God, it's it's so unbelievable. They are growing and they're eating up the caterpillar on the inside. Wow. Right? These little bee larvae. Yeah. yeah. Or wasp, wasp larvae. Yeah. I, I took it into Lily's class. Yeah. These kids had nightmares for oh my a week. God. <laughs> they were freaked out. Anyway, the cat, and, and then, then they, they, they reach this like pupil stage and they start to pop out. The, the They push through the skin of the wow. caterpillar. So it, like it looks like it's like a little porcupine with these little things growing up. And they're now inside these little, in the pupil stage. And the caterpillar, and of course in the insect world or whatever, that's food on the back of that caterpillar, potentially. Yeah, sure. The caterpillar protects these larvae that are eating it from the inside. It, wow. It, it actually will keep other creatures, it'll it'll rear around yeah. if it senses that's another. wild. And then it, it, it's basically just almost dead. Yeah. And then, and then, they, then they kind of, you know, choose their way out of like their little, um, their little, you know, pupil yeah. uh, or whatever that's called, and uh, off they go. And off they go. Yeah. So they were like, but we kept going to larger creatures, and then we got into the toxoplasma with, um, with, um, I think there was toxoplasma in the rats that basically make them attracted. This it, it just gets more and more wow crazy, but the one was the. Um, the toxoplasma can only reproduce in the in the in the um, in the stomach of a of a cat, hmm. right? So the right the rats get it from the cat, you know, like you know the um, um, you know the cat uh, crap, and uh, so it, it it is in their body, but it needs to get into a cat. It can't reproduce. Yeah, it has to be in a cat. The it goes to the brain and it forms these lesions on the brain of the rat, it makes the rat not only attracted to the smell of a cat and cat wow. urine, yeah. it makes it sexually attracted. They've proven that really? it's actually on the level of sexual attraction to a cat. So this is basically a rodent, yeah. a rat or a mouse, that is basically not running away from the cat. It is going towards the cat. Yeah, And they realize that these uh, these these uh, brain altering parasites yeah. are throughout the animal kingdom and in, in, in many ways it's with the with the um, 
with what they've learned in the last 10 or 20 years, it actually kind of changes everything when they look at you know natural history, when they look at the way the ecosystems work. Because mm-hmm. they realize that in some cases, animals are doing things that aren't that make no sense at all. Now, it's not every animal or they'd be wiped sure. out. Yeah, yeah. But it, it plays a really, really big role in um, in the these ecosystems. By keeping the balance. By keeping the balance. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's wild stuff. Yeah, it is. And One Ocean sounds like an environmental... Yeah, it was... Yeah. It was um, Nature of Things did a four-part... Okay. Uh, thing on the ocean and I had the first episode which was basically the um, as we described it the um, basically the four billion year history of the ocean so, oh wow yeah it's kind of just started off with like how did it get here in the first place and uh, it was just m- so uh, interesting um, such an incredible project to work on um, and just sort of blew my mind to like you know deep history Mm-hmm. And you start thinking about you know the Hadrian phase, uh, uh, not Hadrian, but the um, uh, what is it? The earliest phase of the Earth when it was just like this ball of lava, okay, circling around the sun, mm-hmm. and um, how basically water was being forced out of that molten rock. Believe it or not, there was still water inside. It was being mm. squeezed out with the incredible pressure that was happening on this this infant planet. Yeah, and. Um, and then it just would sort of be like super hot steam. And so the planet was sort of this wash of lava and steam. And then, But slowly that water would condense, like when it gets in the outer atmosphere, and fall. And slowly, you know, water, the planet was cooled and the water started to pool. And you're yeah. like, oh, my God. Like that's that's the beginning of everything. That's amazing. Yeah. It was, good, it was great. I mean, the Nature of Thing documentaries I've done, they've all been kind of like that. Lily, what is your favorite Nature of Things documentary that, that I did? Nuts squirrels. Squirrels? Nuts about squirrels. Nuts about squirrels. Yeah. What did you like about that, Lily? Oh. <laughs> that is, it's always fun to make fun of your dad. It's always yeah. fun. Yeah, yeah. It's People like that documentary. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. Yes, there's no nightmares with squirrels. No, no, yeah. no, there was no. Um, when did you first hear about uh, Chani Wenjack? I first heard about Chani Wenjack when I was driving in my car in my mm-hmm. neighborhood in the beach. Yeah. And um, there was a radio documentary on, um, it was, I'll never forget, it was the afternoon. And it was, uh, you know, they have these kind of a filler shows almost where they have um, you know programs from the from the regions basically yeah, so the, yeah. these, these are like not national radio yeah these are and I think that was the case with this okay. although I should check with the reporter because we've become friends since then but this is four and a half years ago and I'm driving around and I'm hearing about this story of this boy and you know how when um, and this is what I love about um, you know I love about radio whether it's cbc or npr or whatever it is is mm-hmm. you know that storytelling you know yeah. that kind of and you're in the car and you're alone and you you know like when you get to the driveway you know you get home you're still sitting and in you're the still, car I, yeah i absolutely we've all been there right yes and it was one of those kind of stories and i remember the way she was telling it and i was just like residential school and it was just like kind of like a 
question in my mind. You know, like, mm-hmm. I think I know what that is, but I don't really know what that okay. is. You know, you kind of think, I'm, yeah. okay, residential school, that I think, yeah, I don't I, I don't have any place to put it. Yeah. I, I can, I'm kind of figuring it out. Yeah. And, and what she's saying, you know, government run or government funded and yeah. church run or whatever. And then, so she's lying, she's setting all that up. And then um, she says, you know, she describes him running away. Mm-hmm. And his home was 600 kilometers away. Mm-hmm. And he's going along the tracks. And I just I just thought, oh, my God. And I could, literally, I could see it mm-hmm. in my mind. My son, Will, was 12 at the time. And just, it just, it just kind of over, overwhelmed me, really. Like, I, I, I could feel, I couldn't feel what it, what it might have been like, but I could understand sure. trying to get home. You yeah. know, that idea of trying it home so far and the distance mm-hmm. and how kind of the impossibility of it, I suppose. It was, you know, late October. And, and anyway, so I listened to that story. And that night, Gord was doing a, they did a, a one week or, a, you know, a five day residency gig at supermarket in Kensington Market. I remember that. The hip did. Remember yeah, that? That yeah, was yeah. I think that was the record for now time for plan A. I remember that, yeah. And we were there and it must have been beforehand because the like the you know Gord the guys were I don't know if they had a bus or something or if they were in the back room. And Joseph Boyden was there and we were t- and I'd met him a few times through Gord. And uh, I said, you know, Joseph, I got to tell you, I heard the most incredible radio doc today about this little boy, uh, Charlie Wenjack, and running away from residential school. And I said, I just didn't know anything about it. And I went home and I found some stuff online because she, had, Jody, had already done a, she had done a good online comp, mm-hmm. um, thing. And um, Joseph said, oh yeah, like it, there's a truth and reconciliation that's happening right now. Now it wasn't, you know. They, they were in the middle of it. Yeah. And I was like, truth and reconciliation? You mean like South Africa? And yeah. He's like, yeah, exactly. Like wow. they are looking into these residential schools. Yeah. Um, and I, was, I said, you know, this is, this is an unbelievable story. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, so anyway, so the next day, Gord calls me or sends me an email and says, Joseph was telling me about this story because I didn't see him. I didn't yeah. stick around after the show. And uh, he says, what, what is this story that Joseph was telling me about? Yeah. I said, let's go for lunch. Yeah. So we went out for lunch. Um, we went to Allen's on the Danforth. And uh, by then I printed up the Ian Adams article that he wrote in 1967 in McLean's. Wow. And, you know, I, I just, like I said, I went, I'd been going over this, this site and printing up stuff from it because they had, like, there was an inquiry into his death. There was a lot of information about this old boy. Really? And and recommendations that of course were never went anywhere or anything else, and um, and Gord and I uh, at lunch, you know, we had been kicking around the idea of starting like a production company to do a film. We were thinking of a fiction, you know, like something a fiction film, live action, uh, not anything like this, not a documentary. Mm-hmm. And uh, over lunch, we just kind of agreed that this was a story that we had to we had to figure out how to tell. Was there prior interest? Um, you guys are friends with Joseph Boyden, but was there prior interest in Aboriginal issues at all? Not really, not, not for at me. all. For okay. Gord, yes. Oh, there were okay. through Joseph. Through Joseph. So okay. they, they, he would Gord have already written uh, "Goodnight at a No, I don't think so. But but he had 
been up north with Joseph a couple of times. Okay. So he was starting to turn in that direction. Yeah, yeah. Residential schools, I won't speak for him. He would have been a l- maybe a little bit further down the road, but not much. Okay. And I remember the other thing is I had a – I don't know if I'd put it all together at the time, but we I was up on a shoot in Baffin Island, and Zacharias Canuck – uh, who directed The Fast Runner, that great Inuit uh, film uh, yes, that, yes. that won Khan and, yeah, and yeah, you yeah. know, um, and he was there. And he was direct. I was directing a documentary. He was directing a short film, and it was all part of the same crew. It was a very cool project called National Parks Project. And I remember him telling me that, and I don't know if it was his family, but he was describing how the kids would be taken to the schools off of the land. Mm-hmm. So they had, up until that point, nomadic, you know, like sure. moving, you know, with the animals in the winter. Mm-hmm. And um, that they were brought off the land to these schools and the parents would just follow the kids right into the town. And then, and, and that would be the end of it. That would be the end of their life. Their lifestyle. Of yeah. Li- yeah, lifestyle, living off the land and, and I, and I remember uh, and him talking about it, uh, but probably not saying residential school. I remember just thinking, like, oh, that's awful. Like, yeah. I can't believe that was in your lifetime. It was yeah. it was his story as well. Yeah. And um, and I just I just thought that was incredible. Like, wow, I can't believe that. You know, without that, you know, you could have been raised. And he he, I mean, he understood his traditions, mm-hmm. but you know, you could have carried on. You know, living this incredible lifestyle of you know like hunting sure and fishing and and just you know living uh in those extreme um conditions mm-hmm. so but but you know re- i really hadn't it was a it was really my education started uh yeah. right then and there and you know and i think that has kind of become a theme like since secret path came out is you know when i speak to people um is to say you know to really admit mm-hmm. i knew nothing and mm-hmm. it's not a great, it's not a great feeling, you know. Like you think, sure. I'm a documentary filmmaker, and I've been all over this country, and I've, you know, and I know a good story when I hear one. I hope, and uh, I knew nothing about this. So I think it's important in talking to people to sort of give them the, well, just to be honest and mm-hmm. say, you know, like you may not, um, you may be coming late, but that's okay you know like a lot of us are just discovering this story mm-hmm. and and i think as importantly also looking at indigenous people in a new way especially when you see guys you know here we are in downtown toronto when you see guys that are broken on the street mm-hmm. you know i don't know if they went to a residential school i, t- I can tell you their parents most certainly did mm-hmm. their grandparents probably did mm-hmm. I mean, the program ran for over 100 years wow. it started sir john a mcdonald started it and um and they and and uh, probably their great grandparents went to residential school. So you start, you tell me that good family that could endure all of that, all of that. And we're yeah, talking about for many of these kids, most of them went by the age of a lot of them went, were gone by the age of six. Many of them were there till either they you know um, till sixteen. Mm-hmm. Maybe some maybe summers at home. Some kids didn't go home. Yeah, it was like they were they were it was like a it's like a work camp. You yeah. know, like a like a it was like a, it was a prison, but um, like I said, my, my my main thing is you know, um, which kind of blows my mind, you know, like a, uh, is you know, because usually when you look at uh, an issue like a like something that has to do with a, like a social, um, oh, what's it called in economic terms, uh, 
it's called a well it's it's a failure like it's a market failure right like when you, if you mm. look at like the social you know situation in um, some of these remote communities or people uh, indigenous people living in urban centers and and you see this kind of um, you know just this um, well you see these broken lives sure but you know usually when you look at something like that you know, it's very complex. Well, you know, you look at it, it has to do with low education levels. It has to do with poverty. It has to do with all these issues. This yeah. one, take away the residential schools. They, 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 they you know, we've had racism in this country for a long time directed at indigenous people. Yeah. But it's so rare to, I believe, that you could have something that is got at such a, like right across the country, you know, um, so much, such a disastrous, disastrous effect on people. And it goes back to a, a single source. That's mm. rare to me. You know, that, that's rare to me because I think, like I said, often I, I find the, these kind of issues are very complex. And yeah. there's not a sort of, and this one's really complex now. There's not a single uh, solution. But to me, it seems rare that there's a, like a, there's a single cause. Like it's just such a causal effect. Yeah. You know? So these things... You know, they didn't, they didn't, I mean, they were meant, it was cultural genocide. They were meant to destroy mm -hmm. these people and, and their lives. Didn't work, but the destruction is, is, um, yeah, it's going to take a long time. Yeah. It's going to take a long time to get, uh, to get, I don't know, I don't know if we're ever going to get past it, but it's going to take a long time to rebuild uh, these communities and these families, you know? It's crazy. So, it's crazy. Um, you hear the story. You, you talk to Gore. You guys make a decision. You know, let let's this be let this be the first movie project mm -hmm. that we put together with with this new uh, production company that you guys found together. Um, what was that process like? What was it a okay, Gord, You work on an album, and I'll work on the film. Or or what was that about? Did you guys know what you guys were going to do first? Or um, I can tell you that right from the day one. Yeah. I can tell you that we knew exactly what we were going to do, but if I told you that, that would be a lie. Okay. Because we had no idea. And you know what happened was um, we started, we thought um, the best way to get, get move forward was to find a writer to write this story up because we've got this ton of research. I put together this research uh, package because, mm -hmm. you know, that's, it was out there. So I just brought it all together in one package and, we wanted a writer, like a Joseph Boyden, but we contacted a few people yeah. to turn that into like a novella. So okay. here you've got, it's a pretty simple story, which you know you kind of think, well, it's you know is, but we thought no, I think there'll, there'd be enough like to to imagine what was going on in his mind, you know, as he was slowly, you know, his health was going, Chani's health was going down. So we just thought, there's no question, there's a great story here. It's, it's a powerful, uh, tragic story. And so we reached out to a few people, and then we waited. And um, we waited, and we waited. And I remember uh, Gord uh, called me up one day and, uh, and said, you know, I got some news. And I'm like, oh, did, did you know, did so-and-so get back to you? And he's like, no, but I wrote a poem. Okay. I wrote a poem about Chani. And I'm yeah. like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's not ex I didn't say anything. I didn't yeah. say, you know, too much. But, yeah. but and... You know, uh, Gord had that research package too, and he mm. was going over it. Yeah. And Gordy is a very methodical guy and a very, um, as I was sort of saying earlier, he, um, 
He's a hard worker, and he was going over the inquiries, going over all these little pieces, and then he writes a poem. Then he writes another poem. Mm. Then he writes another poem. And so, but I don't know what we're going to do with these poems. I don't think this is what we're doing at all. Like yeah. we're, we're still in the game okay. of either getting a... You know, a novella written that mm -hmm. we can then that we can then license yeah. and and then have it adapted into a script and then yeah. turn it into a, a feature film. Yeah. So Gord um, now has ten poems, and we're you know I don't think we're any further ahead. Sure. And then uh, 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 Kevin Drew out of the blue, yeah, uh, calls Gord up and says, you know, I've always wanted to make a record with you, and Gord's it's very nice, Kevin. <laughs> I'm a big fan of yours too. Yeah. You know, so uh, Kevin says, "Well, do you have anything that we could maybe take into the studio?" And Gord says, "No, I don't. I haven't been writing at all." And then he goes, "Huh?" And when was this? When? Oh, uh, so when was that? That was. Um, it must be, must be 2015. Okay. Must be 20. So they go into the studio. Yeah. And uh, Gore doesn't tell him that this is a whole concept oh, record. Okay. Because you know the lyrics are first person, and they're yeah. they're a little bit you know they're like Gord's lyrics. I mean they're I think they're different than anything he's ever done. But yeah. But you know they're not on the nose. Like you can't really just pull if you just look at it. You can't sure. quite figure out. And Kevin was just loving these. Oh wow. These songs, you know, he's just like, man, Gord, Gord, this is so good. You know, this is wow. Where'd you come up with this? And, <laughs> and Gord's not saying too much, right? Yeah. And they're kind of working away on it, and. Uh, and then I think they get, Kevin told me about this later, and uh, they get about halfway through, and Gord's like, geez, I bet maybe I should tell these guys, you yeah. know, like, here we are. And they're like, a concept record. Gord's yeah. like, well, so, but they didn't know. Uh, my understanding is they didn't know anything about residential schools. Oh, they didn't know this, they didn't know this story. Wow. This is three, sure. this is over three years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People, we weren't talking about it. No, no. And uh, so there they are, and they've made this record, this half a record, and they, uh, continue to you know just make the most i, I think that one of the most powerful you know well i i'm, I'm i love that record i, I yeah. think it's most you know i think it's some of gord's very be most important work and, sure. and some of his best work too i think really? in, in many many ways yeah i think yeah. so i think so um and so then there was a record and uh but we still well, maybe this is the soundtrack for the film you okay. know we're still kind of obsessed with the film mm -hmm. and then we uh, decided we're both Gord had turned me on to Jeff Lemire as a graphic novelist yes yes and and we thought uh, I thought because I'd read that he writes in um, script form before he does any drawing right I mean okay. he, maybe he does character sketches but he you know makes sense right you're gonna yeah. draw you can draw a hundred page story you do it all in script form yeah and then you got and it's like storyboards you know and so mm. I thought you know maybe he would do this as a script and we just go straight to script phase. Yeah. So we start and so we met Jeff and um, we sort of pitched him on the story. He said, this is cool. Uh, I really am. I've got an interest already in indigenous issues. And but I'm booked up for like a year, so I can't do anything. OK. And then the next day he sent this thing that he had drawn this, we had no picture of Channy. I didn't know any existed at the time. Sure. And he sent through this drawing that he had, that he did when he got back to his studio after telling us he couldn't had do no anything. Yeah. Had no time. He all of a sudden he just starts his hand. He said it just was like being guided across the page, mm. and he does this thing, and it's Channy sitting in that swing set, and he sends it to Gord, and Gord sends it to me, and, and the subject line says, "You better sit down for this." And I was like, I I opened up the email, and I'm just like hair on the back of my neck stood yeah. up you know it's just like 
oh my god there's charlie yeah and um anyway and then it and then and then jeff um you know finally settled on doing this graphic novel with using gord's 10 songs gordon kevin's 10 songs as mm -hmm. the 10 chapters and he kind of filled in the story parts that weren't necessarily in the lyrics or whatever yeah and then that was the that was the graphic novel and yeah. then we ended up after gord's um I, you know it was after the news of his you know cancer and everything and and cbc had um we asked for a meeting and sarah Polly, uh in her beautiful way set up a, a meeting with sally Cato, and we went and because gord said i think we should animate the whole okay just animate the whole record yeah we're like i don't know man like yeah this is but you know one of the things that had happened was when gord made the record three years ago over three years ago i said you know gord the 50th anniversary of his death is in in 2016 like mm -hmm. we should you should wait you should not release it and gord okay like, gord's like I, I i gotta get it out yeah. and i'm like i i don't think you should i think we should try to like I didn't know what, you know, we didn't know what we were going to do, but I just thought, you know, there's an, there's an opportunity here if mm. we can keep the lid on this thing. And um, and so much changed in that time. I mean, it was unbelievable. Uh, and um, Gord, I remember, called me back and said, oh, the guys, in, you know, Kevin's pissed off. And, you know, because they, <laughs> you know, you make something really great like that. Yeah. You don't want it sitting you know, on the shelf want, for three years. You want it to be out I mean, there, yeah. You know, the whole world could, you know. So anyway, um, but that's what happened. And, and who could believe that, you know, all the things would happen, including Gord's diagnosis, mm -hmm. the passing of my father, Edgar, and everything, like everything was so different um, over that period of time. And yet by the time we got into CBC, they just were like, what, what do you guys want to do? Well, well, it's crazy, but we, yeah. want, we want to animate the whole film. Yeah. And uh, we want it to be on CBC on the 50th anniversary of his death. And they're mm. like, okay, done, done. Wow. So that was that, that was an extraordinary. That was an extraordinary. We were all sitting around the boardroom table at CBC crying, like it was the craziest pitch you've ever seen in your life. When at what time in, in this whole process did you end up meeting Pearl? And Pearl is well, Pearl, Chinese <clears throat> sister, older sister, older yeah. sister. And uh, so what happened was actually very on the phone. That happened very early. So okay. I, I called her when Gordy was probably at the um, when he went off to record. Not not before that. But okay. when, by the time he was by the time he was going to the studio, I want to say I called her up and said, you know, you know. Gord, Gord Downey, who you know, Mike Downey, do you know who Gord Downey is? No. Oh, okay. He's in the tragical hip. Do you know the tragical hip? No. I'm like, <laughs> oh God, here we go. I'm starting from scratch. <laughs> but we chatted and yeah. and um and she said, Yeah, that'd be fine. You Oh wow, okay. Yeah, you should this is okay. This yeah. is okay for you guys to do that. Was that important to you to get that blessing? It really was. Yeah. It really was. We probably wouldn't have gone too much further without it. Okay. Uh, she said, you know, I want you to come up. I want you to see his grave site. Oh wow. We did that in September, yeah, um, last year, and before everything was released, and we came, we brought everything up there to show them, you know, like okay. we had the record, had the had the graphic novel, and first part of the first song that we, had already been animated, yeah. So, um, yeah, that was that was pretty cool, um, and and but yeah, no, we uh, we wanted it to be in partnership with 
with sure. with them, and, and it's their brother's story. And you know what? There's he had five surviving sisters. We met four of them that trip in September. Not not all of them loved the idea of the brother becoming this kind of public figure. Yeah. And you know, uh, my brother Patrick and I, who were with Gord, we could understand it. You know, our brother's been in the limelight for a long time. He's gone through now cancer in the public eye. Um, these things don't make they don't make life easier. No. You know, uh, like I'm saying, going through grieving in in the public. Sure. You know, uh, but at the same time, um, they can um, they can help a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It can help a lot of people. So, um, so we were um, we listened a lot. We listened a lot on that uh, trip up there, and uh, and in the end, Pearl just said, "Look, this is I asked for this fifty mm. years ago when he when Charlie died. I yeah. asked the Creator that his life not be forgotten, that his death not be in vain, yeah. and that for one day his story to be told." And that's, you know, one day I was sitting in my cabin trying to figure out how I was going to get his story told, and the phone rang. There's a funny story there. She was, I phoned her. Yeah. And she kind of gave me, it was kind of a hesitation, like right off the very beginning. Like the whole thing was a bit off, kind of kilter a little bit. Yeah. And I found, and I thought, oh, maybe, I think it's just maybe, you know, she's Nishnabi, and and maybe it's just kind of their way, you know, they they listen. They Mm -hmm. don't just give you, like you and I. Yeah. You know, we don't want. We're not going to have any dead air. We're just, you know, sure. back and forth. Yeah, they they listen. <laughs> wow. And then, so there was kind of a few d- dead spots, right? Okay. But then, which is a little bit of you know the way Pearl communicates because she is such a thoughtful person. But uh, I found out later that she had been sitting there, there in her little log, literally in her log I, cabin. Yeah. Uh, and she was trying to figure out how to get through to Oprah. Because she wanted Oprah to oh tell her goodness. brother's story. Wow! In uh, sure. 2013 or whenever. I can it was. imagine that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, hey, go big or go home, right? And uh, so she's sitting there, she's thinking, "Oh, the computer. I don't have a computer. Maybe the Facebook. You know, maybe I'll talk to my granddaughter about Facebook." Anyway, so, so while she's literally thinking about how to reach Oprah, the phone rings, and she yeah. looks at the phone like, "Could it be? <laughs> Is it Oprah? Is it Oprah? No, it's, it's some Mike. guy named Mike." <laughs> So what I heard was also disappointment. Uh, when, uh, it's not Oprah, but I'll take you guys. Yeah, she's like, well, she may never call. So That's hilarious. Anyway. Um, I, I know I've kept you here for a while, but I, I hope you're okay. A few more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, legacy rooms. Tell me tell me about that. That's that's part of the, um, yeah. the, the When Jack uh, so, Downey Fund, right? So, Kareem, after our trip up uh, to Ogoki Post mm-hmm. – uh, I kind of knew I knew Secret Path because while we were up there, we announced after we'd shown everything to the sisters. Then yeah. the the rollout, like the the the, uh, the press release came out and everything, and um, and you could tell that this is what you know Gord had mentioned on the stage for the Hips Last Show in, in Kingston about mm-hmm. we got to look to the north. Yeah, these people we've been trained to ignore, and so the pump was kind of primed a little bit. Yeah, and yeah. that release came out, and you could tell this is going to go. This is going to get people's attention, and mm-hmm. it and it did. And on the way home, I was thinking about it. You know, being in the in the at least the television business, I think you know this is gonna this is gonna do pretty well when it comes out next month. But it's going to be like everything else. It's going to run its course, right? It's going mm. to have its day. Sure. It's going to have its day in the sun. Yeah. And, and hopefully it's going to be well-received. And hopefully it's going to inspire people to learn more. Mm-hmm. But then I thought, you know, we got to do, maybe we could do something to try to capitalize on that opportunity. 
and create something lasting. So I talked to Gord and I talked to Pearl and, and she talked to her sisters. We started the Gord Downey Chani Wenjack Fund mm -hmm. with one goal, and that is to bring indigenous and non-indigenous people together mm -hmm. and try to improve the lives of indigenous people. So we started, we got set up before the broadcast and we reached a lot of Canadians and they responded and we raised a lot of money mm -hmm. in a very short amount of time. And we've got corporations that are that want to get involved. But you know, there was this um, one day. Um, I remember uh, we I was in Ottawa, and Ian Capstick, who from Media Style, who helped us get off the ground uh, because we wouldn't have got the fund together so quickly without them. And and they knew every little thing that had to happen for the for the fund to happen. Anyway, Ian introduced me to uh, Chief Morley Gugu, yep. who was the regional chief for Nova Scotia, Newfoundland. And Morley said, I've got an idea. I've mm. got an idea for the for the fund. And mm. it's going to be a way to raise awareness and education. It's going to be a way to raise money, too. Yeah. I'm like, well, what is it? So he says, well, I was in the steakhouse, Barrington Steakhouse in Halifax, and I started looking around, and I thought, you know, we need a space of reconciliation in public places. Okay. And so he says, he gets out a napkin, he starts doodling on his napkin, and the owner comes by and he says, hey, what do you think about putting in a legacy room here? guy's like what's a legacy room he says it's a gord downey chani wenjek legacy room and it basically it's a place where there's a picture on the wall there's a plaque on the uh, outside the door and it basically says reconciliation is this is a place of reconciliation this is where it's safe to have these conversations this mm -hmm. is where it's promoted and so he tells me this and i'm thinking steakhouse like you know it's kind of a dining room in the uh, you know private dining room yeah, yeah. i'm like okay I, I could see that i could see that I just you know it's kind of a I don't know I don't think this is a big idea. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, about a week or two later, he calls back and he says, "Oh, guess what? Dalhousie wants one." Because like, he was, we were just kind of talking maybe restaurants, public. You know. Okay, sure. Dalhousie wants to put one in. This law firm wants one. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking, wait a minute. This is, and what it was, what, what Morley's genius was, was that for a lot of these organizations, they have been wanting to get started down this path of reconciliation. They've been wanting to do something. The question is, where do you start and what mm -hmm. do you do first? This is not a means to an end, but mm. this, for some organizations, is a great way to get started. So um, Morley started signing up these um institutions okay. and now yeah. i don't know how many we've got we're we're still pretty early days yeah but uh it's growing and basically what it is is this beautiful print frame print of a picture of gore and a picture of channing in the middle is the story of, of residential schools yeah and that this organization that you're in uh, right now yeah is set aside this this place for reconciliation where they want you know um conversations to happen and they want to get moving so mm -hmm. it sort of becomes it's a physical space and it's a it's a physical reminder of the importance of reconciliation, mm -hmm. and that we all, in Gord's words, need to do something. Yeah. And like I said, it's not the act necessarily of reconciliation. Sure. But it's the it's the sort of little launch pad for where we think like a conversation starter. It's a conversation awareness. Starter. Absolutely. So you know, yeah. like in a boardroom, uh, and we just put one in at Bullfrog Power uh, with our friend uh, Greg Kiesling. You know, it's in there. Uh, the boardroom so every time they have a meeting in there with a client or somebody else like yeah. oh what's that oh do you not do you know the story of you know mm. gord downey and 
and, and it's not the story of Gordown, it's the story of Chandy Winjack, and it's not the story of Chandy Winjack, it's the story of residential schools. Yeah. That's kind of what we're just using this. The beauty of Chandy's story is, mm-hmm. or it's the tragic if there part, is, yeah. yeah, is that, you know, it's a it's a simple story of a boy trying to get home. You don't need to know too much else. Yeah. But you know, you've got kids. You don't even need to have kids. Sure. The idea of trying to get home, just yeah. back to where those who love you. And that, I think, is why the story is able to, I think, travel as far as it has traveled so far. It's it's a universal story. And now, oh, now you realize what the circumstances were at the residential school. Oh, now you see that this was done to 150,000 of these kids over mm. 100 years. So all those details can come next. But I call it, it's a great on-ramp story. Yeah. gets you onto the highway. And once you're on the highway... You're going to learn a lot more about about this and ideally be inspired to maybe do something a little bit about it. Yeah. So the um, the legacy rooms, um, uh, yeah, it, I think it's going to be something that is going to be around for a long time. We're, we're, we're also going to do something a little bit um, sort of simpler in schools. Okay. Uh, so what, what happens is for these um, businesses, organizations, they've got this beautiful print, quite large, actually, and framed. And then on the uh, that goes on the wall, and then there's a plaque, the Gordiana Channing Wenjack, that goes sort of side. And then there's a smudge bowl, and then the Secret Path book. Mm-hmm. Also, a couple of uh, pieces on residential schools that we've got from the the Center for Truth and Reconciliation. So it's kind of like a starter kit yeah, almost. Yeah. And in return, what they do is they um, uh, gift us five thousand dollars, and then agree to do it for five years, which mm-hmm. they can do through fundraising or however else they wanted to do it. Yeah. And then what we do is we take that money yeah. and then we actually put it into acts of reconciliation that people have come to us for. S- small grants. Okay. Think 5,000, under 10 for sure. Yeah. And um, so then we recycle that money yeah. into, you know, ideally into the same kind of uh, communities. Mm-hmm. And um, was a, uh, and so that, 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 Money gets it started into actually real reconciliations, yeah. reconciliations, um, and um, ideally those bring indigenous, non-indigenous people together mm-hmm. and help improve the lives of indigenous people. Yeah, we've only done a couple so far. We're we're um, we've got our our uh, application uh, on our, our website's being redone right now, but we've we've now done a couple, and we did one hockey cares where this hockey cares was this group. In Oakville, hockey parents, they contacted this team in Attawapiskat. Mm. They got all this travel, a travel sponsor. They brought them down. Uh, they they were all put up in a hotel together. The Attawapiskat team was. They mixed the team, so they all were like teammates oh, wow. and back and forth. And they they took them to the Hockey Hall of Fame. They did all this kind of great programming, not just you know sure. playing. And um, so the funny thing was, was that. Um, we gave them five thousand dollars just just to say, look, this yeah. is a great idea. Let us. They needed like a hundred dollars each to kick in the the travel sponsor that they yeah. had, and so we're like, this is exactly the kind of thing that, that we want to do. Yeah. You you're you've got this group here. Yeah. You've reached. You've done it the right way. You haven't yeah. just said, oh, we've got an idea. Yeah. Now we're gonna you know sort of give it to you. Yeah. Um, you've reached out to your indigenous partner. Yeah. You're doing it together. Yeah. This is what they want. Yeah. Okay. You're and so. And anyway, so I had this afternoon where um, the, uh, Perva, who uh, Perva Churi, who works for the Downey Wenjack Fund, said, "I think you should call this school. We just got a check. It's an Oakville school. Um, 
they just sent us a check, uh, you know, end of school, uh, for a couple thousand dollars to the fund. And I just thought maybe you can catch them. It's the last week of school. So I phoned up, I phoned up this um, uh, woman at school, and um, Andrea, and uh, at St. Mary's, and uh, I said, oh, I just thank you very much. This is really great. Oh, you know, the kids did a bake sale, or yeah. I don't know. And uh, I think, well, thank you for thinking of us. And we're yeah. going to, just so you know, one of the first things that we're funding is in your backyard. It's in Oakville. Yeah. And they're bringing down a team from Attawapiskat. Yeah. She said, oh, really? She said, my husband's the director of marketing, marketing for Bauer Hockey. Oh, my. Do you think they would need, do you think the kids would need some equipment? Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. So we connected the woman nice. who was running Hockey Cares yeah. with the woman who's sent the donation into the thing. And the her husband from Bauer shows yeah. up, gives all the kids that's amazing. Yeah. So, like, there's a lot of people yeah. that want to get in, you know, that want to get in there. And what we want to be is just helping people do it in the right way. Yeah. You know, and um, um, I think there's going to be a lot of these kind of stories that are going to trickle out. And you know what? It's, there's no, you know, there's no panacea. There, there's no single solution to mm -hmm. reconciliation. I don't, I don't even, sometimes you kind of wonder, do we even know what it is, you know? But we, we think at the Downey Wenjack Fund that if we can inspire people to try to get started and and then encourage them to do it in the right way, mm -hmm. not a, not that kind of white savior kind of way or however you want to put that, yeah, and and say, you know what, um, you got, you know, follow your heart, yeah, but lead with your head, you know, and and do it do it in a in a really constructive way. And you know, what, if enough people do that. We will move down this path towards yeah. reconciliation, and in doing so, we'll pull the government along with us, whether it's the Fed or the or the provinces. Sure. You look in the paper. I mean, I know people don't necessarily read the papers, but I do, and um, you know, in the indigenous stories, they are being told more. Yeah. Some of them are 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 pretty are pretty sad, and you know, some of them they, we just had the indigenous games here in Toronto. Yes, yes. There's a there's some really good stories, yeah. and and those stories have to be told uh, as you know as importantly as as understanding the suicide you know epidemic that's yeah. happening in northern communities, remote communities. So the water problems that they water have. problems that you know yeah. So I think um, I think there there's a long way to go, but I think I think there's a you know for me I think reconciliation could be just find your way to do something. Mm. It doesn't have to be big. Yeah. You're, you're not going to crack it. I mean, you're not going to solve it. Yeah. But you know what? If 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 you show, you know, if we show Indigenous people that we care, we yeah. care enough to to educate ourselves and we care enough to do something, mm -hmm. it's going to take a long time. But, but, yeah. but we will, I think, I think we'll, I think we'll get closer to it. I think we'll move forward, you know. Um, we'll literally move down this down this path you you, you mentioned something um about you know doing it the right way not the white savior way um don't take the question the wrong way but do you ever feel or d did you ever feel in the past saying that will people take it the wrong way that you know you and gord people of, 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 of quote-unquote privilege we, white like did you ever have that feeling if, you know what if 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 i'd been smarter yeah. I, I probably would have i probably would have been concerned about that okay. why would a couple of you know a couple of hosers from Kingston, hmm. um, but um, you know, wh why should we be telling that story? You know what? I don't really have an answer for that. Um, we, 
we wanted to tell the story. Yeah. It, it was from a pure place. Yeah. Um, we did reach out to Chani's family. And we ultimately, you know, worked with the, uh, the center, uh, the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation in mm. Winnipeg. So we did it, I think, you know, um, in, in many ways, Gordon and I kind of felt, and Gord very much, you know, like, we wanted to tell the story to white Canada. Okay. We can reach white Canada. Yeah. And I, when I say white Canada, sure. I, I mean, yeah, yeah. Know, I, yeah. the rest of, you know, the rest yeah. of the country. I, I, yeah. You know, you want to keep saying non-Indigenous yeah. Canada. But but I want, we wanted to reach, we wanted to reach Gord's fans. Yeah. And, you know, um, so, and, and I do think, you know, um, I think it was important, and and the way that 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 Gord uh, and and me, uh, sorry, Gord and I, um, I, I want to say Gord, has been accepted by mm-hmm. you know the leadership in in um, you know Indigenous Canada. It's quite phenomenal, yeah. and and um, and I think, and it doesn't mean there aren't critics, but sure, um, sure. I, I I do think overall they realize that you know what this is nobody's done this. Like who's the last person? Um, I think Neil Young uh, clearly has, you mm-hmm. know, has in his heart, uh, has done a lot um, for Indigenous causes over the years. But, you know, to have somebody in Gord's situation stand up and yeah. say it's not it's not right. Mm-hmm. So I think I think it's worked out, worked out rather well. I, I do think, you know, there's a, there's a right way to do things. And sure. I, I think we managed to do that, um, you know, perhaps. Um, Maybe not everyone will agree, but uh, I, you know, we're coming from the right place. The the fund is indigenous led. We have an indigenous uh, majority uh, steering committee, mm-hmm. um, and the um, the uh, fund itself is is uh, our program director is indigenous. So we're doing like we're sure. trying to do everything the right way. Yeah. But we want it. But you know what? I think it's as important to, to do something. Sure. You know, and and if you know what, you somehow. You got to do what you can to educate yourself, but um, you're not going to be perfect. No, and and, and you're going to be open to criticism. People yeah. can people people might say, you know, whatever. Well, that's just life, you know. Yeah. John Doyle hated hated Dragon's Day. What, <laughs> what are you going to do? What are you going to do? <laughs> he probably hated the squirrel documentary too. <laughs> but your daughter loved it. That's what's important. My daughter loved it. Yeah, working. Uh, that's about squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> she was that's there. why she loved it the truth comes in um where can people go to find more information um about the downey wenjack fund we have uh, downeywenjackfund.ca we've got a kind of a site that's that's not very exciting right now but we are working with a fabulous uh indigenous uh, uh company actually called anamiki uh out in bc and they are redoing everything and on their our new site, you're going to see um, the work that we're doing and uh, what people can do if they want to get uh, apply for a, a grant. Uh, they can fill it out uh, online. And, um, yeah, we're good. that's going to continue to grow. And also all the information about Legacy Rooms uh, will be on there as well. So, um, But for now, they can uh, reach out to downingwenjekfund.ca and uh, uh, we're easy to reach. And, um, yeah. We're um, we're getting busier and busier as uh, as we go forward. So we're we're really really excited about it. And this is something that Gord, um, you know, uh, is 
you know, I really keep him up to the minute on all the stuff that we're doing. Mm-hmm. He's really excited about it. So, nice. and the other thing is that we've we've been doing these uh, Secret Path uh, short documentaries on CBC as well. So if you look on their online okay. platform, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, in the documentary area with these uh, short documentaries that are Secret Path related, are these snippets of the movie? Or? No, they're original okay. pieces. Like we've we did a piece on a guy who did a Secret Path garden. Oh wow! Uh, Joe Genovese, who told the story of Channing Wenjack with this interactive garden that he did at Canada Blooms back in March. And it's a fabulous story. Okay. Um, and um, so, um, yeah, we are sort of continuing to try to bring attention to these acts that people are doing. Mm-hmm. In, in this case, kind of sometimes inspired by, by Secret Path, the, the, mm-hmm. the record, the film, the, the book. And um, um, so, yeah, we're trying to keep... Um, we're trying to show some of the ripples that are that are that have been happening across the country, and and there have been quite a few. A lot of, I mean, just simply teachers who um, you know have used the the book in their classroom, and who are you know some were already teaching reconciliation, but many have found it a really useful tool um, uh, for teaching uh, reconciliation in schools. So hopefully that uh, we can. And one of the big things for our fund is support those teachers. We really want to be, uh, mm-hmm. we have a lot of teacher support and we want to create a site where they can go and they can share lesson plans and things like that uh, and get uh, sort of best practices for teaching reconciliation no matter what age or grade or, or even which, which subject uh, as well because it crosses over, uh, you know, through multiple subjects. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we're, um, we're really... Um, uh, we're really excited about this stuff. You know, it it um, it couldn't have um, uh, for me. It, it's ve- it's 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 very rewarding, and uh, and uh, I'm uh, I'm really proud of of what we've done so far, and and hopefully we can continue to to uh, get people interested and and get on board, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know we'll we'll make a better country. We can we got a great country. Yeah. We can make a we can make it even better, and I think we should start with with what was here in the very very beginning. Yeah, you know, and and I think we I think it's almost like we need a do a do over. Like there was just we could have mm. the, the culture is so rich. There's so much to it, um, and there's so much to learn. Uh, and I think a lot of these lessons are really they're really timely. We're really timely. We've got to sped up digital society that we're living in and so many of the and i'm early days like i'm no expert on any of the traditional uh, teachings and uh and and traditional knowledge um and uh i'm a true neophyte and uh but i'm a curious fellow as somebody mm-hmm. once told me and uh it it there's so much to take away there is yeah you can be you can be quite selfish about it you, there's a lot there's yeah. a lot to learn and i think as a country we could incorporate like uh, I'm lucky enough to have a uh, got a trip coming up to New Zealand uh, around Christmas time, and I'm really fascinated to try to understand how they're um, they've managed to incorporate uh, the Maori into their culture. Mm. It, it seems like um, it's happened uh, for them, and they may. I think I'm quite sure they're kind of ahead of us on that. I know they are, um, but um, I do think for Canada, we're not. It's not a very big country in terms of population. Sure. I, I think we could kind of do uh, something very interesting in the next. 100 years 150 years where the indigenous part of our of our national identity really comes to the fore mm-hmm. you know we pull it out when we host the olympics and things we like do, that we, you yeah. know it's sort of like and yeah. it's so cool you know and because without it you know you're kind of left with you know hockey sticks and donuts you know like we yeah. we we need something like this i think to kind of continue to um 
to forge, I think, a really um, a strong identity that, that, may, that binds us even closer together, I think, ultimately. So <laughs> I, I think it's going to happen. I really do. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time, Mike. My pleasure, man. Great to meet you.